SCP-6500, The Inevitable. Path of the Warrior. I hate stories, she said. It wasn't exactly the truth, but she knew it would hit harder. The man at the podium blanched. She might as well have told him she hated Greeks. He glanced at the title slide projected above and behind him, as if for support. It read, Applied Apocalyptic Pataphysics, or Telling Tales at the End of Everything. He nodded to himself, apparently convinced and affirmed, nobody hates stories. Entire auditorium torso twisted in their seats to see Delfina Ibanez's short frame dominate the tall doorframe by sheer force of personality. Fine, she allowed. I hate fiction. That's better. Judging by his tone, the improvement was marginal at best. Now, you want to answer the question? She strolled down the aisle, relishing the creaking of her leather boots and the flexing of her rayon jumpsuit. I already forgot it. I asked what your favorite story is. I was going to ask someone who didn't show up late, but you made such a dramatic entrance. She flopped down in a chair next to the only person in the room she recognized, Dr. Udo Okori. Looked like death warmed over. The Bamas offered her a sympathetic smile before responding. I'm late because I hate fiction, which means I despise pataphysics, which means you should ask somebody else. You want to call the shots? Get your own presentation. He gripped the pulpit and leaned forwards so she could hear his sneakers squeak at the stage. What's your favorite story, Chief Ibanez? She pretended to consider just for a moment, then answered, the right stuff. I hate magic. Ibanez arched her eyebrows. How can you hate magic? Okori remained in her seat as the auditorium emptied around them. Her eyes were haunted. You'd learn to hate air if you suddenly found yourself on the moon. What's wrong with your friend? Ibanez glanced up at the rumpled Adonis in the aisle. I blame your stupid lecture. You're stupid, he grinned. My lecture was great. I'm a thaumaturge, said Akuri. She took off her glasses and pinched the bridge of her nose. Natural born. I'm 90% water, said Ibanez. You're 90% hot air. She's 90% magic. Akuri smiled weakly. Not far from the truth. Since the impasse started, I've woken up every day feeling like I just gave a pint of blood. You might try Dr. Sinclair's lab, the man suggested. Our mage. Might be something for low Eve in there. Okori nodded listlessly. The banish shrugged. Thanks, Dr. Whatever. Placeholder, he corrected her. Placeholder mid-doctorate. She arched her eyebrows again. Want to know how that happened? No. The banish linked arms with her friend and helped her up. Okori found a pack of syringes in the absent Dr. Sinclair's office, which temporarily alleviated her malaise. Ibanez left her in the dormitory to sleep it off. Placeholder proved more difficult to shake. You know how rare it is for the O5s to declassify two 001 proposals? He asked at the back of her head. His legs were long, but she walked like she had a purpose. Swan says a gaggle of horror writers in extra-dimensional space intervene in our daily lives, and Pikmin et al. say the very concept of narrative is sapient. They wouldn't have let me lecture on that and freak everyone out for no reason. I didn't say there was no reason, she shot over her shoulder. I said the reason was stupid. Reality isn't stupid. He jogged in front of her and began dancing backwards down the corridor on the tips of his shoes. Our existence is defined by a network of anomalous systems. We live in an anomalous ecosystem, Chief Ibanez. Something is killing off the genetic diversity, but it's not happening evenly across the board. As one layer of esoteric weirdness contracts, the others expand to fill the gap. He pulled a strange, fiddly piece of technology out of his lab coat pocket and waved it at her. This thing measures narrative fluctuations, and the needle is still moving. There's barely an inch of magic left in Sloth's pit, but the power of fiction is still going strong. She grimaced. 
You expect us to substitute stories for actual magic? Stories are actual magic. Placeholder waved his arms in the air, clipping off a passing agent's baseball cap. He pirouetted to offer an apology, falling in step beside Abanis as he did so. She shook her head. Fine, it's all the same. They had reached the barracks, where she was bugging for the night. She backed against the door and plucked a keyring off her belt. Stories can be magic for all I care because my job is to shut magic down. She unlocked the door. I end stories, doctor. She slipped inside and closed the door at his face. Ferryman's Landing Ibanez woke to the sound of water on wood. It lapped at the edges of her perception, a rhythmic liquid clapping, soothingly low-pitched. She became aware of a creeping moisture on the back of her jumpsuit, and her first coherent thought was, I have never peed the bed before. Her second coherent thought was, I'd never gone to bed on grass before either, and that was enough to propel her to her feet. The air was ice cold, and she could see her breath in the brief instant before it melted with the oppressive mist surrounding a riverbank, stretching to an infinity in both directions. The water was darker than the space behind her eyelids, clapping against the sides of a low-riding wooden rowboat rocking in, in a breeze she couldn't feel. There were oars in the oarlocks, and a heavy traveling cloak was flung carelessly over the stern. A battered fedora was perched precariously on top, and it moved to witness her approach. The coat heaved once, only once, like a held breath. Hi, she said. The hat dipped down, obscuring whatever lay beneath. One sleeve swung up out of the water, dripping black rivulets, and pointed weakly down the river. It held this pose for just an instant, then slapped back against the bleached timbers. Why not, she said. This was clearly a dream. She waded out, feeling the chill against her calves through her combat boots, and boarded the small craft. The heap of fabric seemed to deflate, as though achieving its goal had sapped the last of its strength. I'll be rowing then, she sighed. The ferryman's hat bobbed rhythmically with the dipping of the oars as it watched her pull them along the estuary. After an eternity of splashing in mirror still waters and uncertain progress through an opaque cloud of white, she felt she didn't know what she felt, but it was behind her. The ferryman's hat slid back and she sensed that it would beckon again if she could. She looked over her shoulder and saw the city. She was standing in the city. The river, the boat, the ferryman, they were all gone. Stone walls loomed around her, and there were solid cobbles under her feet. The street rose up a steep hillside, a dusky, antique burg dominating the horizon. I wasn't sure you would hear me. Ibanez bit off a retort. The voice was thin, it was weak and piteous. She began to walk, and her shadow refracted in the dim light. A myriad of silhouetted figures kept time with their footsteps. I bring you hope in the final hour. Who are you? She paused. And don't give me any cryptic dream bullshit. Our time is nearly spent. She was climbing the broad chalk steps of a church, surrounded by shadowy figures which winked out one by one as she passed them by. The steps ended at a smooth stone platform, where a snow-white robe lay fluttering in an another phantom breeze. Come to me and begin. The breeze soared into a gale and she fell to her knees. As she clamped both hands over her ears and shouted something fierce, the robe blew aside to reveal... Sight 87 Sloss Pit, Wisconsin, United States of America. It was a vision, Okori yawned. She fiddled with the cold chicken sandwich on her plate. It was a story seed, said Placeover. He devoured half of his own sandwich in a single bite. It was a dream, Ibanez growled. Undigested cheese. Dixie and myth, Placeholder waved it away, slinging a stringy piece of poultry under a passing agent's boot. Cheese doesn't cause bad dreams. Protagonistic proclivity, though. That's a surefire way to get... Visions, Okoria finished. She looked only marginally better than she had the previous night. 
Know what else never fails to grant visions? SCP-5923. The banner is blinked. Which one's that? A lonely city in Turkey. It used to send people dreams, begging them to come home to it. Until we started funneling tourists there in the 90s. Haven't heard a peep since. I made steeple to fingers. Was there a river? A boat? A boatman? Ibanez nodded. Mists? A church? A figure in white? Ibanez half nodded. More or less. McCoy leaned back. 5923. They want something from you. Probably dying, said placeholder. Like all anomalous things. Maybe thinks you can help it. Maybe thinks it can help us, Ibanez mused. What? The other two asked in unison. It told me... She winced. It told me I could restore the balance. And it showed me a sword. It told me the sword was the key. She felt ridiculous. The doctor shared a meaningful glance. All right, said placeholder. Let's play by the rules. O5 says anything we do to counteract 6.5k has to be ritualistic. Something, something reinforced the power of the anomalous. He pointed at Banis. Say that you don't want to go to Turkey. I don't want to go to Turkey. She meant it. Good. You've refused the call, so we can proceed. He, re he gestured at Akori. Vision quest rules? Akori shrugged. It's not a vision quest and the vision comes first. That's just a straight-up quest. Village of Kayakoi, Republic of Turkey. Well, Ibanez remarked, this is horrible. They were standing in the snapshot of a bustling village, street after street of stock-still people with glassy looks in their eyes. A faint breeze whistled through the winding, rising townscape, and a middle-aged band with a fanny pack pitched over into an apricot stall. The contents rolled merrily down the hill. Sit them down, she called. Her ten-man mobile task force fanned out, gently guiding the swaying subjects to the ground. McCroy was already kneeling. She was fumbling the Sinclair's pack, preparing her third injection for the day. What happened to them? Placeholder was negotiating the accidental fruit liberator on his back. It's this place, McCroy yawned. She was yawning every other sentence. Thrives on the vitality of its citizens. So, vampire village. Ibanez fingered her holster. No. McCroy took a deep breath. It doesn't leech life. It mirrors it. It cares for the people who visit. If it's subsisting on them now, there has to be a reason. Sure, said Placeholder. It's starving, and they're the only real meal in range. I'm not so sh said Akori. She was punctuated prematurely by a deep rumble which shook the cobble so hard they popped out of their mortar. Banis barely kept her feet, and Placeholder fell into an apricot cart as the street curled over like a tidal wave. It broke with the crash of stone and powdered paste. The buildings all fell away, and they were tumbling through a sheer black expanse. The landscape reformulated. They were now standing, crouching, and sitting in the basin of a dry fountain. The Church of Ibanez's dreams towered in front of them. The MTF was gone. Hurry. Each word was breathless, an urgent plea. Find me. Hurry. It's speaking to me. Ibanez stepped out of the fountain. It's telling me to find the sword. There, Corey rasped, pointing at a storm portico at the base of the church stairs. The library. There isn't much li magic left here, but I can... It's in the library. Appropriate? The placeholder offered her his hand as Ibanez checked in with her squad on the radio. The library was modest. Kayakoi was only a village and really more of a tourist trap, said Ibanez, and I want credit for that one. There was only one patron, slumped over at a table with his face literally in a book. The librarian behind the help desk was peering unseeingly into her computer screen. Third occupant of the room, therefore, attracted their full attention. Take it begged the white-robed, hooded figure. It stood in the center of a scuffed mosaic floor, alabaster hands bearing aloft a suspiciously shiny sword. Ibanez unbuttoned her holster. Don't try anything funny. The end of the unknown is the end of all stories. The voice was a mere trickle in her ear as she warily approached. 
the end of all stories is the end of all change. The rose abruptly slipped away, revealing a glossy white marble statue of the same robed figure. Ibana is strained to hear the final words. The end of change is the end of everything. Ibana pulled a chair from beside the slumbering scholar, dropped it against the statue's plinth, placeholder knelt to pick up the fallen robe. Be careful, Okori rasped. She was leaning heavily on the help desk. Ibana stepped onto the chair and worked her fingers between the statue's hand and the sword's guard. The cool metal lifted easily, and she wrapped her hands around the attached cylinder of cool wood. She held her breath and drew the weapon free. She released her breath and examined the thing more closely. It was a short sword, less than three feet long, with a circular crossguard and a burnished oak pommel. There was writing in the edge of the crossguard, but she couldn't read it. The unfamiliar lettering made her eyes hurt. What now? She stepped down, feeling off balance with the heavy weapon in her hand. Do I stick this in something, or...? Placeholder looked thoughtful. A dragon would be the obvious choice. Akori's head was cocked to one side. You hearing voices too? Ibanez called over. In response, the thumb torch collapsed to the floor. She put her back against the paneled wood, breathing heavily. Her companions rushed over, Ibanez carefully pulling the sword behind her as she ran. Akori grimacing as they bent over. There's a way in here. A way to what? Placeholder rummaged through Sinclair's satchel for another eve shot, stowing the robe in the process. No, a way. A portal. I can feel it. She blinked rapidly. But every way has a knock, and I don't know this one. She glanced at the sword. Any other further messages from the great beyond? Ibana shook her head. I think we're alone now. She showed the cross guard to Akori. This mean anything to you? The mage squinted then looked away sharply. I can't read that, but I know who could. She thumped her head against the back of the desk. The serpent's hand. Placed on a frown as he helped her with the injection. Right. Our best friends. Good thinking. The hand doesn't want magic to die any more than we do, Akori reminded him. Circumstances have changed. Where exactly is this way? Ibanez interjected. She reached over her shoulder and wrapped her knuckles on the wood. Right? And there was a distant click from within the desk. Akori's jaw dropped. You didn't tell me knocks were literal. Ibanez grabbed the sword and stood up. They aren't. Akori squirmed on the floor. Placeholder stuck his arm under hers and hauled her to her feet. She couldn't let him go this time. Must be a symptom of the general breakdown. Or this was your role in the narrative, the pataphysicists suggest. Akori grimaced again, but did not argue the point. Ibanez walked around the desk and rolled the Komatos librarian out of the way to reveal, Son of a bitch. There was a cabinet door at knee level in the desk, and it was open. When she saw what lay beyond, she nearly dropped the sword again. The Wanderer's Library. They crawled through the door in the desk trading the cool stone of Kayakoyas for a soft, warm bed of whistling blue grass. There were timbers beneath, not rotten, but firm. And polished? Ibanez didn't fully understand until she stood up, when she didn't understand at all. She was standing in a scrubland clearing, which was simultaneously an ornate athenium, the grandest library she had ever seen, a tree line of jam-packed shelves rising up to a storm-clouded ceiling. A warm breeze carried the scent of ancient paper and a sound of distant fighting to her as she turned to face her comrades. Akori was still on the grass. She looked up apologetically. I don't think. Ibanez handed the sword to placeholder and reached down to carry her friend. Hope most of your weight was magic. They passed into the forest of stacks, walls of literature stretching in every direction. They promenaded through a series of colossal arcades, pausing at East Junction to watch for supernatural traffic. Over the course of 15 minutes, they encountered an animate skeleton pressing its finger bones into a two-meter blob composed entirely of eyes screaming, Praxis! over and over again. A squat, four-eyed green creature pulping an army of papier-mâché cockroaches with an enormous leather tome. 
some sort of immense dinosaur creature, which they ran away from too quickly to see what it was up to. And no less than three different wild-eyed robed men struggling in the grip of disembodied arms, which reached down from the ceiling to throttle them. Okori trailed her arms behind her, lightly caressing the spines of every book within reach. She was breathing deeply, her eyes rimmed with tears. What's that? Placeholder asked, and Abana shifted her stance to carry the mage one-handed. Her other hand snapped to her waist with practice ease. There was a rush of air, and a single shot echoed through the wooden canyon. A slug impacted a swollen cluster of nerves in mid-leap. Both disintegrated in a spectacular spurt of blood and metal. Yeah, said Abanis, lowering her service weapon. What was that? Did you even aim? Placeholder knelt to examine the wreckage of the spider thing, setting the sword under the floor between them. You're terrifying. And loud, Cory groaned. Put me down before you do that again. Ibanez lowered her to the floor. The maid shuddered. I'm feeling... I don't know if it's better, but... Ibanez swung round, finding the pommel of the sword in her left hand and bringing it up in one fluid motion. Another ball of flesh was falling from the distant ceiling. She slapped it away with the flat of the blade. Pull, she shouted, and snapped off a second shot. This time the creature careened into one of the shelves, tracing a bloody trail along a set of encyclopedia. Oh, shit, said Placeholder. He was staring down the aisle at an army of sanguine spiders nodding together to bar their passage. Before Abanis could regain her feet, however, the curtain of flesh was violently flung aside and scattered across the stacks. A tremendous red-backed millipede, bigger than a convoy of buses end-on-end, end, reared up and hurled the jittery things high into the air, sucked them into a gnashing split down the middle of its gigantic round head, then snatched the stragglers up from the ground with an unearthly squeal. As the last red morsel disappeared down its gullet, its deep brown belly burned scarlet and the sound of boiling flesh filled the air. It belched a thin plume of flame over its own rounded shoulders and slammed back down to loom over the three of them. Ibanez glanced at Placeholder now cowering beside Okori's prone form. This count as a dragon, you think? Jailers! The gargantuan horror squealed. In my library, you shall not! Its spindly limbs splayed out suddenly, and its segmented trunk crashed down to the overgrown floorboards. Oh, bother. Ibanez stood, raising the sword between them. I'm not here to jail anything. She kept what she felt was a surprisingly even tone for addressing a train-sized monster. I'm here for a single piece of information, and trust me, you really do want to help me find it. I'm not a docent, you half-bite nitwit. It scrambled back to its feet, leaning against the stacks for support. I should tear you to niblets for suggesting it. It paused. Niblets? Or is it giblets? At any rate, I don't trust your kind. I don't abide thieves and book burners. Would you rather abide spiders? Ibanez kicked the nearest mulched monstrosity. The millipede slapped it out of the air with a flick of one spined foreleg. Are you a spider abider? The creature reared back again, and for an instant, Ibanez thought she was about to join the spiders in its fiery stomach. Then a surprisingly gentle, chittering sound filled the air, and she came to the feverish realization that it was laughing. Spider abider. You're not at all bad, it hissed. I am the eighth archivist. My friends call me the Rounderpede. Its T-bar eyelids contracted. You may call me the eighth archivist. Awesome, Ibanez lowered the sword. You want to tell me why the library's on fire, metaphorically speaking? Metaphor, nothing. The archivist skittered aside to reveal the largest interior space Okori had ever seen. Rows on rows of desks, shelves, tables, and chairs, chaise lounges and couches, lanterns and braziers and magazine racks and podiums. It was expanding and contracting like a living, breathing thing. And as she stepped out from the, under the stack, she suddenly saw why. A skyscraper's worth of overhanging galleries were crawling with an endless web of fleshy red spiders. 
entwining their quivering nerve appendages together to form a network of gore and gristle. The grand hall, Okori breathed, sparks leapt from spider to spider, putting Ibanez in the mind of, well, fuck me. I will revise. You want to tell me why there's an arachno brain forming in your lobby? The randerpeat wheezed, expanding and contracting like a bellows. The old magic is dying, the ways are open, and we can't shut them. Things are coming through, things that we don't want, things which have been waiting. What sort of things placeholder had joined Abanus in the atrium? Former patrons ejected for theft, destruction of library property, consumption of library property, consumption of other patrons. The gigantic globular head swung up as a new smattering of spiders burst bloodily into being above. And eldritch monstrosities, of course. Things which only exist to transition from out to in. This is one of those. Its glowing green orbs narrowed. The grand hall expands to suit its contents. That's normally very convenient. Not so much right now. Okori stood up shakily. You guys on a first-name basis? It's the half-wit brain of Uberoth, the Randerpeat spat. The spit was a mass of writhing black. It sizzled on the green boards beside them with the scent of rusted metal. Anathema to knowledge. Uberoth the empty. Uberoth the senseless web. Uberoth the maw of trackless midnights. That's a dude's name, said Abanis. The archivist clicked its gruesome zipper of teeth together. What? Uberoth? Abanis stared, entranced at the multiplying meat neurons. Sports guy from the 80s. My dad used to follow baseball. The apex of the hall was now concealed above a false ceiling of rippling red, livid with blind moronic mirth. Peter Uberoth, she said. The spiders rooktifying in the stacks. A gaggle of docents were gamely brushing them down with brooms. I'm about 90% sure. Yeah, said placeholder. I don't think this is him. Abanis squatted down and tugged her boots tight. You a climber, buddy? The Randerpeat's coils were tensing. Ever upward? She shifted into a starting position. And how tough is your chitin? The archivist was shuddering with anticipation. Tough enough for what you're considering. What are you con- Corey said in the moment before Abanis kicked off the floor onto the massive Melopete's back. It beetled onto the nearest support column, and they shot up into the cavernous space beneath the congealing brain. Abanis gripped a arched spine with one hand and twirled her blade with the other. It was emitting a dull white glow. I'd hide if I were you, she called down her companions as the round of peats spiraled towards the welcoming wall of organic filigree. Ibanez ascended the immense arthropod's rising trunk, hopping from section to accordion section as it crawled along golden mezzanines, since swinging from spine to spine as it climbed endless marble stanchions. The sky was raining spiders and books. The randerpeat caught the former with its teeth, tearing them to shreds or gulping them down, and plucked the latter out of the air with its serpentine tongue, clutching them to its belly with astonishing tenderness. Once it snapped a grimori out of freefall and swallowed whole. Eating library property? Ibanez shouted over the blood in her ears. I have severed tracks for... Tracks, the randerpeat wheezed. Some of my fluids are excellent for conservation. Her retort was cut off by a sudden tearing at her hair. She pulled out a wriggling spider and smashed it against the archivist's flank. Okay, she howled. Operation Fuck Spiders is a big old go. They swerved through a balustraded gallery, and another mindless malicious thing hurled itself towards her. She swung hard, and the spider slid along the flat of the blade. Twin slits opened up in its separating breast, and she flung it hard against an ornate golden stanchion. It exploded. The Randerpeat's colossal visage rolled around to glare at her. Swords are not clubs! Sorry, baseball on the brain. She adjusted her grip as they wove through the squirming stacks. I don't even know what that is, it said. She split the next three leaping horrors cleanly in half. 
the scarlet spray vanishing into the archivist's hide, then pulled herself on top of his head as they were dashed between the shelves. She knelt for balance between the shining crystalline eyes, held the sword out behind her, and began to hum as quivering shapes bounded towards her from all sides. The next few minutes were a red blur as a is hacked and slashed and otherwise eviscerated her attackers. They exploded back into the Grand Hall in a haze of cleric viscera, and she danced on the archivist's back like a drunken Errol Flynn. She spun one unlucky lump of meat on the point of her sword. It tried to clamber down the blade, and she whisked all eight of its legs off before flicking it away. It struck the tiles beside the ground-pounding doctors like a hunk of wet hamburger. She swung wide and caught five of the creatures at once, sweeping them into the round repeat's gullet and giggling maniacally. A dozen stories up, the space where the ceiling had been was finally in reach. The archivist kicked off the wall and crossed the open vault like an architectural rib upside down. The abandons clambered onto its belly and held the sword aloft, tearing through the arachnid sky and bathing in a torrent of shimmering crimson. She was laughing so hard she nearly lost her balance. A curious chthonic tittering, which might have been the rounderpeed laughing with her, echoed across the grisly gap. A chunk of falling masonry tore through the organic fabric, striking the archivist's back. With a mighty harumph, it released a belch of flame just inches from where Abanez stood. She lurched back and swung the sword, a gesture of purely futile instinct, and a rush of force expanded from the leading edge, catching the fire and incorporating it. The sword now gleamed with a blinding white light. Ibanez brought it around in a wide arc. A firestorm twirled through the hall, and the canopy of veined arachnids burst into flame as one writhing, dying entity. The Randerby finished its transfer to the opposite wall and thrust its foreparts into the empty air, whipping back and forth to catch the sheets of falling, burning spiders. Ibanez scrambled back onto its head to carve up the remaining horrors as they tumbled down, cackling and whooping and poising contraposto. Placeholder and Okori retreated to the stacks as a waterfall of cooked gray matter and boiling claret splashed the floor. The Randerpeed skittered down the final story to the ground-level carnage, and Ibanez swung down one of its legs like a monkey in a line. She landed shit-kicker first on a vinyl surviving spider, crouched in apparent terror on top of the main circulation desk. It blew apart like a red jelly donut. The doctor stared at her. She was covered, plastered, head-to-toe enveloped in blood. Her vermilion visage split open in a dazzling white smile, and she bellowed, I love stories, before doubling over with laughter so fierce and full-throated that it obviously hurt. Sparks danced and fizzled out on the rounder beat's slick chitin and snatched a few more out of the streaming air with its black and sinuous tongue. It was whistling soft and low, still cradling dozens of priceless manuscripts and monographs with the tenderness of a doting parent. Later, the archivist recoiled from the blade. I wouldn't speak that tongue if I could, which I can't, it growled. No one here can help you. You must go down to the source. Ibanez nodded. That tracks. What's the sword? It told her. Oh, said Placeholder. Let's not go there. We have to. Akori was sifting through the nearest shelf, visibly drawing strength from its contents. It's where this story ends. She noticed him staring at her and blushed. Quest, story, same difference. Ibanez gritted her teeth. If we get this translated, and all it says is peace on earth, I'm going to break something. Maybe everything. Maybe that's what the sword does, placeholder mused. Makes you so pissed off you become the ultimate warrior. She ignored him, addressing the archivist instead. I assume there's a way that we can use? Not a way, a wound, stipulated. An infected scar, the only souvenir of an otherwise unwise alliance, long broken. It lies beyond the sevenfold portal, which will shut itself behind you when you enter. The library is connected to all places of knowledge, but this connection was not made willingly, and we would sever it if we could. 
Now, I've been meaning to ask about that, said Placeholder. The library is connected to all possible realities, isn't it? It's a multiversal constant. How is it falling apart just because our reality's magic is dying? The tremendous head cocked to one side as if considering. The cause must also be a universal constant, or near enough. Personally, I blame you, Placeholder winced. So I guess sending us some serious help is out of the question. Yes, the millipede scratched at the floorboards. This may soon be the last bastion of magic in all creation. I won't risk it on your fool's errand. Ben has scowled. We're trying to save the world here. You could give us an inch. I've given you more than I would have on any other day. The archivist reared its bulk up against the ceiling as if to impress upon them their relative bargaining power. Ben has dropped the calicoi robe, now stained vermilion, and examined her still streakish reflection in the bright blade. All right, she said. Show us where the portal is. The randipede shook its head, shaking a few stray scarlet droplets free. And you'd only curse you to find it yourselves. It drew a deep breath, and they stared into the amber glow of the heart at its ribbed throat as it chanted, Hie thee now to halls unkind, where to your sorrows you shall find, in Grimori's black on ebon shelves, the Stygian pits within yourselves. I'm sorry, it added after a moment's pause. A quarry and placeholder immediately walked away. Ibanez strained against the sudden force impelling her to follow, pulling against it like a swimmer in the tide. She asked, What if this is all that's left? The Argivet's eyelids contracted almost imperceptibly. Even if you're right, if we don't succeed, there won't be a single centimeter of anomalous anything left outside of this place. Ibanez gestured with great effort at the Grand Hall, in the midst of a runaway expansion as the surviving wanderers congregated at the scene of the bloodbath. What if everything dies but the library? Then the library will be enough, the rounder page stated fatly. It swung around to join the throng as Ibanez finally succumbed to the urge to take her leave. They filed through well-tread corridors, well-kept gardens and commodious common rooms in a lucid trance, clusters of patrons breaking around them like waves on the shore. They plunged deeper and deeper into the heart of the library, minds blank, stepping surely and precisely and wholly unconscious past age-worn galleries, decrepit archives, and disused studies. When at last they reached the jet-black vault door, they were alone. Akori pressed a hand to the iron, and the outline of a larger hand unfurled in gold brocade. The door opened. The air changed. The door opened. Their hearts raced. The door opened. The door opened. All moments in time became one. The door opened. Time stood still. The door opened, and they walked through. Almost as an afterthought, the door opened to admit them. I hate magic, said Ibanez. Akori patted her on the shoulder. The room beyond was a diminished reflection of the Grand Hall, blackened and pitted with age, fire and rot. A beam of pure dark light shone down on the shattered tile floor from an aperture in the ceiling. A viscous black fluid ran in narrow streams from the empty shelves, flowing down into the central emptiness. It looked like ink. Sheets of paper rained from above, disappearing into the apparently bottomless pit. The thing about bottomless pits, said Placeholder, is that they aren't. Ever. Ibanez walked gingerly to the edge. This is a metaphor, yeah? The descent into madness? Her companions joined her. It's a metaphor for progression, said Placeholder. For transition. For the acquisition of deeper knowledge. It's a hole, said Akori. She stepped in front of them, smiled brightly, then stepped back into nothingness. They watched her fall, then linked hands and stepped in after her. And then the door closed. The Black Vaults. The bandits fell free in the darkness for a second time that day. She didn't consciously close her eyes as she fell away from the light, but she did have to consciously open them when her feet touched solid ground again. She still couldn't see, and when she opened her mouth to comment, 
she realized that she was wearing a mask. She worked her fingers under the edge and peeled it off like a bad sunburn. It was a solid, featureless strip of white porcelain, like a well-worn bar of soap. Her companions stood beside her, holding their own masks and squinting in sudden brightness. She dropped the mask and held the shimmering sword aloft. Akori leaned in to examine it, stroking the crossguard longingly. This thing is hemorrhaging magic, she whispered, awestruck. It shouldn't be getting more powerful. Nothing gets more powerful anymore. Half the artifacts in our inventory straight up failed. 2264 won't open, 005 and 963 are flat out dead, but not this thing? Maybe that's why the Magic City wanted us to have it, placeholder suggested. Maybe it really is part of the solution. Putting the genius in genius Loki, Akori agreed. Here's hoping. Well, it's a pretty shit sword, minus the part with the whoosh. She blew out for emphasis, then held the thing in front of her to illuminate the surroundings. Guess we're on a library crawl today, she muttered. A corridor of cramped black bookshelves stretched away to near infinity. She could almost sense the curvature of the earth and their immensity. Very cramped black bookshelves. Very, very... They all shuddered as one. Ibanez had a palpable sense that the books were wrong. The shelves are wrong. She cut herself on the sharp, sudden image of the charcoal stacks, splitting open with their expanding burden, bursting in a hail of, We need to move, she said. She shook her head hard. We need to move before we start hearing voices. She immediately strode forward. Come on, she didn't need to look to see if they were following. Have you come to steal our secrets? This voice was not weak, as the voice of Kayakoi had been. The voice was strong, confident, ringing with the tone of broken bells in empty wells. Rats to the poison? She walked faster. The shelves lengthened skyward like dead fingernails. The books were watching. They did not approve. Do you seek to know us? Do you seek to know yourself? Or do you seek fouler obscenities still? The voice was a sneer, a mockery. It was also a raucous stream of laughter, sonorous and racking. She was naked in the dark. Delphina? Or Cory was far behind. Delphina, are you alright? You are come to our dwelling place. The shelves were closing in, but there were no shelves. You are come to the terminus of all which is beautiful and ruined. Her footfalls made no sound. You are come to Black Alagada, and you are welcome here. She stopped walking. She closed her eyes. Come to me, the voice said. Come to me and end. This doesn't end. Her own voice startled her awake, and she opened her eyes. She was standing, the four of them were standing, in a pool of caligonous tears. There were books in the water, drowned catastrophic revelations, the words drifting off sodden pages to swim beneath the surface tension. Ben is knelt down in the murk and ran her fingers through a membrane between the venom and the enough. Her companions stagger back as Ibanez's shout echoed through the vast subterranean lake, all three of them staring at her reproachfully. Here is your knowledge, one chided. Drown in it. She blinked. Knowledge? She gazed into the pool, then reached in and scooped up one of the books. Its pulped interior sloughed over her jumpsuit as she closed the cover. She couldn't read the words, but the lettering was, What remains when names die? She squinted. The lettering was an immature of the madness within all of us. She took a deep breath, squeezed her eyes tight, and tried one final time. The title was simple. Sploitation. She dropped it, and the still water swallowed it up without so much as a dewdrop of protest. She scooped up another. Rack and roses. Another. The auspices of debauchery. English words surfaced through this silent, alligaton tongue like a whale breaching the ocean. Of course, said Akori, kneeling to look over Abanis's shoulder. Alagadon's script translates itself within the city. 
They stood together, and the four of them closed a circle at the center of the pool. This is what the archivist meant, said Abanis. She held the sword aloft, and it rotated slowly. We had to go down to the source. The blade was a shaft of pure white light, so they could read the inscription with perfect clarity. Ibanez spoke it aloud. I will not fade. We'll see about that. Her third companion spat, and in the instant before she realized she didn't have a third companion, it fell upon her. The ambassador of Alagada dug into the flesh of her right hand with sharp nails, and she fell over backwards into the peaceous pool. Through the swirling murk, she saw the absence of a face, shredded wrappings radiating away like peeled off skin. I know you, it cackled. You are no hero. Her back broke the surface, though she could still see the frantic faces of a quarry and placeholder peering down at her, and she splayed out on the polished tile floor of Site-43's main elevator access corridor. A hundred bandaged specters stalked towards her, and she found the sword in her hand was now a sleek and shining high-tech rifle. Murderer, the nearest one spat, and she spat fire back at it. At the moment of impact, it transformed into a terrified woman in a security uniform. She spun away, both arms severed at the shoulders, blood splashing the clean white walls. Coward, cried the next one, throwing back its hands in defiance. The woman it became disappeared in a red mist as Abanez pulled the trigger. Jailer was the final word from the advancing throng as Abanez scrabbled back against the wall and sprayed them all with sustained fire. They fell on her, blasted apart, blood soaking the tiles, until a clawed hand reached out and pressed her head down into the spreading splash. You are no savior. She emerged a coughing, sobbing wreck, the stagnant pool of swamp water. The sky was on fire and planes were roaring overhead pelting a lagoon-side village with heavy artillery while men and women in MTF outfits struggled to assemble an anti-aircraft gun. The torch in her hand had been snapped in half, but the incandescence above luridly lit the expanding cloud of red in the water before her. A small girl lay face down in the muck, a single clean exit wound in the back of her skull. Ibanez reached down, fighting the almost overpowering urge to drop the torch, and turned over her sister's ice-cold corpse. This isn't real. Her voice disappeared into the throaty snickering of the faceless bandaged beast, which reached up and closed its talons against her throat. You are nothing. This time she fought back, hammering at the ambassador with a broken torch. It seemed taller, leaner, more confident as each blow landed. This isn't real, she screamed. This is a dream. Dreams are more real than all the magic in Alagata today. The bandages fell away, and the lithe form of sheer night enveloped her. She felt her fingers loosen on the torch, gun, sword... And as the ambassador thrust her down to the water once more, she understood what was happening. She took a deep, rattling breath, and as it pressed her beneath the tepid surface, cleared her mind and focused on the only thing that mattered to her at the end of all things, her failure at the fountain, where ten good men and women lay dead. You are no leader. Razor-sharp fingers dug into her scalp, and her eyes filled with blood as she emerged into the moonlit, rain-swept landscape of Kayakoi. She splashed through the fountain's basin, coughing up rainwater and gagging on scalding hot air. The beast stood on the church steps, regarding her with an air of casual, impersonal malice. I could take you apart with a whisper, it crowed, but it's far more amusing to let it do it your fire, she croaked, and felt a rust of satisfaction as the ambassador froze in confusion just before ten rifles worth of hollow point ammunition tore it into sable shreds. Her agents emptied their magazines. The perforated monster took one step forward, then plunged face-first down the stairs. She had the briefest glimpse of a white robe blowing crazily in full-force gale behind it before this entire scene snapped abruptly into non-existence. She was on all fours in the endless pool of knowledge. Her enemy was face down in the water, whole but motionless. 
She loosened her grip on the sword and held it up behind her. She didn't see which of her friends took it. So focused was she on the savagely satisfying act of reaching out and snipping the hateful creature's neck. A sound like a single link of chain shattering rebounded through the cavern, and she dragged herself out of the inky mire. Akori wordlessly handed her back the sword. It glowed like a beacon in the black. What the fuck was that thing? Placeholder was raining as they strode down the stone corridor. The ambassador of Alagata, Akori was calm, one of the most powerful sorcerers ever to walk the earth. Is it dead? It was dead to begin with, the mage looked rueful. Under normal circumstances, it could have disassembled us at an atomic level without batting an eye. Yeah, Banas nodded. Her voice was somber, but stronger somehow. It said as much. That's why it lost. She reached up to clean the blood she felt running down her face. Her hand came away and clean. Villains never know how to read the room. Was that the villain? Placeholder interrupted. Akora, you called it an ambassador. Does it serve the hanged king? Don't say that name aloud. Okori winced. The answer is yes and no. It's complicated. Placeholder reached into its lab coat pocket. Do either of you know anything about character archetypes? They both shrugged as he produced his little narrative fluctuation detector. Specifically, do you know what they call the big bad second in command? They shrugged again as he adjusted the dials on the device. They call it a dragon. Ibanez stopped walking. Wait, are you saying... I'm saying, you pulled a stone out of a statue, saved a sovereign state, fought, and maybe even slew a dragon, and, he stared the detector, yeah, we're topping out the scales here. Ibanez shifted her weight impatiently, and that means, in practical words, it means we need to start winding this thing down or we're going to draw the authors down to our level and get trapped in an eternally escalating narrative. As much fun as it would be to see you achieve heroic apotheosis, there's still that small matter of a world that needs saving? Akori's eyes were glinting as sword light. Actually, on that topic, she reached out to touch the sword, then jerked her hand back to suck on her finger. Oops. Um, she collected her thoughts. Are we clear on why this dead hunk of metal has been gradually approaching critical mass? It's twinning her protagonistic potential, said Placeholder. Banna stared at him. What? It's drawing strength from your heroism, Akori explained. No, scratch that. It's matching the strength of your heroism, the way Karakoi mirrors the contentment of the tourists. The city called out for a hero, and you answered, because that's who you are. She clasped Abanez's shoulders. We've come to Alagata, from Turkey, Delfina, by the way of the goddamn Wanderer's Library. We didn't do that to read an inscription that didn't tell us anything useful. We did that to do it. The sword triggered the quest, and the quest triggered the sword, Placeholder agreed, through your absurd sequence of strength feats. Do you know how long it's been since someone shifted the balance of power in Alagata? Akori asked. How long it's been since the jailers walked free in the halls of the Hand? How many decades it's been since Kayakoi spoke? She laughed. Or how long it's been since my veins felt full of fire? She was beaming fit to shame the sword. That's what this thing does. It's reflecting whatever's inside you, stirring up the stories, bringing life to dead and dying places. For all we know, there's enough raw charge built up in that blade to reverse the impasse entirely. Ibanez considered this as they reached the end of the corridor, a thick stone archway leading into an ample dark. Well, she said, holy shit? An empty dread settled over them as they crossed the threshold. They were standing at the edge of a colossal rotunda, a coral reef of twisted pillars, tattered banners, and chaotic colonnades. Passages like the one they had just exited branched off in every direction. Legends and sinister sigils carved above ebony lintels. The heart of the Hall of the Hang King was a circular stairway to a raised eye, dominated by a crepuscular throne sculpted with scenes and figures which crawled beneath their eyes like the memory of worms in the grave. 
It was littered with nasty-looking spikes, broken links of black metal, and frayed links of black rope. A single chain hung from the unseen ceiling, swaying in a breath of air which failed to disturb the dust coating every exposed surface. And the throne was empty. The quarry drew them back into the corridor, her dusky features funereally pale. We have a problem, she nearly choked on the words. The only way to leave Avagada is to pass through a door. A real door. She jerked her thumb over her shoulder. There might be one in there, but there are definitely doors in the city. So we head up and out? Ibanez felt her pulse rising. Cory shook her head. No, the king is free. I think you, or we, freed him. Ibanez raised the blade between them, and Akori shook her head more forcefully. You saw what it did to the ambassador. If the Hang King gets his hands on that, with nothing to hold him back, we won't need to bother saving the world. It'll already be doomed. Placeholder was hyperventilating. So we searched the passages and hoped to find a door. And if we don't, Ibanez watched her friend's face carefully. Cory turned away from her. Pick a corridor, any corridor, and run. The light in the hall was curious. They could read the inscriptions over each passage, but the space across the dais where the winding stairs to Alagata Popper lurked was an unbroken pitch black. As they moved from doorway to doorway, staring down endless tunnels of lightless rock, they realized the shadows were neither lengthening nor shortening with the motion of their makeshift torch. They found a grand total of one door, a jet black wooden affair with a starburst pattern of locks. The legend on the lintel read Aditum, and a quarry wordlessly declined to try opening it. Teeth clenched and faces gaunt, they edged around the throne platform towards the unretreating gloom where the gloom moved. Oh, said Akori. She reached into her satchel, withdrew a leather pouch, and poured its contents into her left hand. She clapped both hands together, and a cinnabar cloud expanded around her. Goodbye. What? Ibanez said, seizing the mage by the shoulders. Akori's muscles were taut, and she planted her feet firmly in the grime. Placeholders scanned the tunnels frantically as Ibanez tried to force her friend to face her. Akori rubbed her hands together until they were both the color of old rust and then began tracing lines in the lingering powder. Udo! Ibanez moved a step in front of Akori, and the taller woman turned around and shoved her roughly back. Her face was streaked with tears. You need to go! She knelt to draw lines in the floor with her fingers, carving an intricate design around herself as the black haze billowed up behind her. An empty matter scheme, an unraveling tapestry of absolute nothing, a multitude of tenebrous tentacles writhing out towards them. Ibanez raised the sword, and Akori favored her with an anguished smile before striking a fire between her thumb and forefinger, pressing it to the figures on the floor. A wall of flame erupted beneath her feet, bisecting the throne room, separating Ibanez and placeholder from the advancing ecliptic tangle that was the Hang King's shade. Ibanez pressed her hands to the fire. It was cool to the touch, but firm as solid stone. Akori mirrored her friend's gesture, then pursed her lips, and pushed. Ibanez was flung back, sliding across the filthy slabs. Placeholder pulled her to her feet as she screamed her friend's name. The space behind the firewall was now a starless, moonless night. Akori raised both her hands above her head, hair billowing, muscles straining, spine straight. The king's empty bowl forced her to back away, bit by bit, edging beneath the lintel marked with a simple sign of three crescent moons. She was still a picture of perfect resolve when Ibanez lost sight of her, propelled down a lightless passage marked never meant by the distractful but insistent pilot physicist. The never meant. They hadn't made it 50 feet before Ibanez felt a violent urge to race back to the throne room, stronger than the archivist's curse in the library, stronger than the pull of a moth to a flickering frame. We have to go back, she said. 
Placeholder made no move to restrain her. He obviously knew his own strength. We can't. This is the only way forward. He ran both hands through his dark curly hair. We need to get you out of here. We need to get the sword out of here. You're the protagonist. Akori and I... No, snapped Abanis. Akori and I are just secondary characters. He raised his hands up in defense. It's true. Abanis barely resisted the urge to slap him. She pointed back down the passageway. Don't talk pataphysics at me right now. My friend, my friend is going to die back there if I don't help her. He shook his head sadly. No, she's going to die whether or not you help her. The question is, will everyone else? Ibanez balled her hands into fists. You don't know where this goes. For all you know, you're leading us down a dead end while Udo gets... She blinked back furious tears. For nothing. Placeholder frowned grimly as he tapped the narrative detector in one finger. I do know where this is going. Alagata is on the shores of the Nevermint as an interdimensional void, a space between spaces. With the collapse of magic, if my theories are correct, it's a realm of pure pataphysics, the domain of the authors. Abanez blinked. If your theories are correct. He nodded. I talked to Okori about this before we left Sloss Pit. There was always a chance we'd get trapped in a loop out here, with our world so infused with narrative power. He sighed. If that happened, we agreed to push things over the edge. She felt her jaw setting push things over the edge? He looks stricken. Check off another narrative box, reel the authors in, hit one final note on the cliché scale. Her withering glare dared him to say it, so he swallowed hard and obliged. A grand gesture. A sacrifice. For a moment she feared she might drive the radiant sword through his heart. For a moment she thought she might dash him against the glistening black masonry. For a moment she might lose her mind. And then her heart leapt into her throat and a blinding light burst from the edge of the blade. It's not a fucking sacrifice. She stuck the tip of his blade directly under his nose. It's a sequel hook. At first, there seemed to be a light at the end of the tunnel. And the, it then became apparent that this was actually an absence of both light and darkness. A creeping cast of gray which swept all clarity and color aside. They ran through the dimming fog, Ibanez stealing brief glances behind them. For a few precious moments, there was still the void, the silent memorial to an uncertain fate of Udo Okori. But soon, not even the absence of anything remained. Their feet were falling on thick pile carpet, casting clouds of dust through a starlit gallery paneled in vibrant maple. This isn't real, said Placeholder, eyes set firmly forward. There was a fire burning beyond the leaded windows, and a sudden lamentation split the night with enough force to... They were running through a labyrinth of stinging nettles, staring up at a hollow sky. A noose was hanging from the heavens, a shapeless figure kicking at the end of the rope. We're breaking through the layers, he snapped. Keep moving. They were barreling down a hazy, fence-lined street, rows of dead-eyed corpses turning to watch them pass. Trumpets thundered on high. Something massive moved in the mists. Almost there, he said, clearly out of breath. They were falling through an empty expanse again, and she knew she was being observed from behind the veil. I never told you how I got my name, placeholder remarked. His eyes were wide and wild as he pointed at the emptiness ahead. I got something's attention, and it cursed me. They were pinned against a black velvet curtain like butterflies on a specimen board, a metaphysical mass looming over them, reaching out to grasp. We've learned a thing or two about curses ourselves in the interim. A howl of static, a sevenfold shattering of chains, an inhuman rictus, rising up behind them and a scream from beyond the fourth wall and the village of Kayakoy, Republic of Turkey. They were sitting side by side on an uncomfortable wooden pew, gazing up at the white-robed figure floating above the pulpit. 
Its robes were billowing in an unseen breeze. The end of the end is nigh. What was that thing? Her own voice sounded flat, empty, even alien to her. When the author came for us. It was a safeguard, placeholder muttered, staring at the motionless needle in his narrative function detector. A last resort against the writers if Bush came to shove. A contingency plan we never thought we'd need to use. He blew out a bragged breath. I deployed it in the noosphere before we left Site 87. The bandits glanced at him, almost too exhausted to ask, Why didn't you tell anyone? He responded timidly, recognizing the fire in her eyes. Because then it wouldn't have found us. Because it wouldn't have been a deus ex machina. We have to follow the rules, you know. She glanced down at the blade. I will not fade, gleaming like burnished bronze, and shook her head. Fuck that noise. She stood up and headed for the open double doors, pointedly ignoring the lingering genius loci. The rules follow me, starting right now. Addendum. Deep briefing material. Missing persons report Dr. Uruakori, Chief Delfina Ibanez. In the early days of the SCP-6500 crisis, three Foundation personnel embarked on a voluntary expedition to A. Acquire an anomalous artifact, B. Uncover the truth of its origins, and C. Determine whether or not it could be used to partially restore the status quo. This resulted in the acquisition of 6500-Alpha-Sword, the leading edge. Said artifact is a blade capable of reflecting the inner strength of its bearer into thaumaturgical and narrative energy, revitalizing decayed anomalous landscapes and living creatures and restoring momentum to their stories. Dr. Udo Okori, chief of applied occultism at Site-43, was lost during this operation in the hostile and extremely hazardous city of Alagada, and is presumed KIA. The bearer of the sword, Site-43 Pursuit and Suppression Chief Delfina Ibanez, subsequently organized a mobile task force made up of individuals with exceptional protagonistic potential, as identified by Dr. Placeholder McDoctorate. Chief Ibanez and MTF Delta 6500, the Magical Mystery Tour, were deployed to each Foundation site and a variety of Foundation-friendly anomalous locations in order to repair the damage done by 6500 wherever possible. While local effects had been more extreme, generalized through random, global, interstellar, and interdimensional effects have also been witnessed. Selected, intentional, desirable, and unintentional, undesirable, and unforeseen restorations include SCP-5923, the living village of Calakoy, no longer subsists on the psychic energy of its denizens and has returned to contented hibernation. SCP-179, the self-reclaimed lookout, has stirred to life and now points with one finger directly towards Earth. SCP-2922-C. All contact with the afterlife known as Corbinic was lost at the outset of the crisis, but has become accessible once more. JOI Alpha-19. Formerly dedicated to addressing this SCP-6500 crisis, a number of revitalized serpent hand thaumaturges have resumed their campaigns of attrition against the Foundation. SCP-1762. A single instance of 1762-1 has been reported in the wild. Confirmation pending. The sword has proven incapable of restoring most anomalies whose anomalous functions have fully ceased. Attempts by Delta 6500 to enter the Wanderer's Library to render aid and assistance have been categorically rebuffed. No attempt has been made to return to Alakata for reasons which should not require explication. It was observed that the sword can only draw a certain amount of power from each wielder before becoming inert in their hands. Chief Aban is therefore mandated rotating the use of the artifact between all members of Delta 6500, utilizing their unique protagonistic profiles to infuse moribund anomalous locations and entities with whatever variety of esoteric force they require to continue or resume their normal functioning. 
After one week of this activity, citing a sufficiently well-trained and diverse task force capable of carrying out these actions independently, Chief Ibanez surrendered the artifact to Dr. McDoctorate and nominated him temporary head of the task force. She requested leave of absence to convey her condolences to Okori's parents, researchers stationed at Site 91 in Yorkshire, England. This was granted. The doctors of Corey report nothing unusual in Chief Abanis' activities during her time at Site-91. Nevertheless, on her return to London, ostensibly to resume duty with Delta 6500, she was instead seen entering Her Majesty's Royal Palace and Fortress of the Tower of London, heavily armed, at which point she disappeared without a trace. This has been SCP-6500, The Path of the Warrior.